0: Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more.
1: With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobard, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names from high profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors to out of the way innovators and remote pioneers.
0: Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is August 19th, 2020, and you're listening to Episode 14. Today, we talk chicken cock with Greg Snyder.
1: But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles.
0: Streaming, sipping, and sensory. Bourbon Women's Sip Summer Series kicks off Women's Equality Week with a three-day digital conference, August 20th through 22nd. 6 to nine thirty p.m
2: enjoy a top shelf collection of spirits education right at your fingertips this first ever and distinctively curated online series will keep you sipping with
0: fellow bourbon women this summer you'll experience unique tastings mixology food pairings and informative and engaging segments with industry experts that include live q a all from the comfort of your own home plus you can take part in our first ever e-auction of one-of-a-kind bourbon items and experiences. Tickets and more information available at bourbonwomen.org. The 18th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, better known as Prohibition, took effect on January 17, 1920. The Bolstead Act, which the 18th Amendment codified, restricted manufacturing, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors, making it illegal to distill or purchase spirits unless. It was for medical purposes, prescribed by a doctor, and dispensed by a pharmacist. This medical loophole made it possible for a small number of companies to continue selling alcohol with a government-issued medicinal license.
1: While ten licenses were authorized, only six companies applied for and received them. They were Brown Foreman, Frankfurt Distilleries, now for Roses, Glenmore, currently part of Diageo, Shenley, also part of Diageo, APH Stitzel Distillery, predecessor to Stitzel Weller, also now part of Diageo, and American Medicinal Spirits, AMS, which became National Distillers, now part of Beam Centauri. At the dawn of Prohibition, Kentucky was home to 210 distilleries with millions of barrels aging in rickhouses. Since distilleries could no longer sell to consumers, many sold their frisky to the six licensed companies or exported it to Europe and Canada. This arrangement helped keep some distilleries in business, barely, but many nevertheless shuddered forever. By the end of the decade, however, pharmacies were running low on inventory, and so, beginning in 1929, Washington granted the six licensees the right to make three million gallons of new distilled spirits per year. An unintended outcome of this policy adjustment? Millions of barrels of aging whiskey were ready for release by the time the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th in 1933.
0: Of course, there were non-legal ways for one to obtain a drink during Prohibition. Secret bars, where whiskey and other spirits were smuggled in, in nondescript tin cans, popped up all over the country. In these speakeasies, a new drink culture emerged. No longer were taverns rough places that were only fit for men. Now all were welcome, and women were patronizing and openly drinking in bars for the first time. The Roaring Twenties became known for a freewheeling people and outright libertines, individuals who rejected traditional moral standards, celebrated flappers, dancing, and jazz, and also defied Prohibition. Chickencock Whiskey, quote-unquote the famous old brand, was smuggled into Prohibition-era speakeasies, such as Harlem's The Cotton Club, and is now being resurrected. We'll learn about this whiskey's past, present, and future when we speak with today's guest, Greg Snyder. Stay with us. Team Whiskey is the original brand for outdoor sports and whiskey enthusiasts who hosts events and sells apparel to help raise money for cancer support groups. Team Whiskey hats are unique and one-of-a-kind, custom-built, and features outdoor and whiskey-related artwork on the underbill. T-shirts are made from a quality and comfortable 60-40 cotton blend that are pre-shrunk.
1: A portion of every purchase and event ticket sold is donated to cancer support groups. To learn more about Team Whiskey, their products, programs, upcoming fundraising events, and
0: how you can help support a cancer support group, visit www.team-whiskey.com. That's www.team-whiskey.com.
1: Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we're fortunate to have with us someone whose CV screams Johnny Whiskey Seed, Mr. Greg Snyder, Master Distiller at Chicken Cock Whiskey. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for joining us.
3: Well, thanks for the invitation, Philip. It's my pleasure.
1: My lord, what a CV. What have you not done and with whom have you not done it?
3: (laughs) That may take a while. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Let's go.
3: Okay. Well, uh, my history in the uh, in the spirits industry dates back to 1978. Right after I got out of college, uh, I attended Indiana University, had a business degree, and you're from the-
1: Indiana, yes?
3: Yes. Uh, well, I've spent lived most of my life in Indiana, and and but grew up uh, through high junior high school, high school, and college here. So, and, and right right close. I live in Southern Indiana, and. and Close to uh, where ninety five percent of uh, bourbon whiskeys made in Kentucky. So,
1: uh, right. Tell our listeners the town in which you live, because I don't think there's a name more colorful.
3: Yeah, I actually live in uh, in Floyd's Knobs, Indiana. It's it's right across <laughs> the river from Louisville, Kentucky.
0: Floyd's Knobs. Does that have a story in and of itself? Like, it, what? I mean. No, you know the knobs <laughs> are a,
3: a set of hills actually. Um, okay. We call it the Ohio Valley. Uh, where I grew up in New Albany, which is the, the the city right next to Floyd's Knobs, that's down in the valley, basically. And, and Louisville's kind of in the Ohio Valley as well. But the knobs are just a, a small—I won't call them mountains because they're not not tall enough to be called mountains, but as they call them knobs.
0: Like foothills. Yeah, pretty much foothills. Interesting. I have not yeah, heard that term. Pretty much foothills. Okay.
1: All right. Very good. So, forty-two years, I hear.
0: Right. Yeah. So I
3: started in the industry with uh, Joseph E. Sigerman Sons. They had a facility in Louisville, Kentucky at that time and I interviewed with them and, and actually uh, was offered a job as a frontline supervisor. And then the production division, it was, you know, it was a great training ground. at Seagram's, if you were aggressive, you wanted to learn, did learn and you perform well, uh, they kind of put you on a fast track and moved you around quite a bit. So in the five years that that facility operated, I basically worked in every single apartment within the, that facility every single production department from you know just the distillery to the dryer house uh to the barrel warehouse filling barrels putting barrels in the in the warehouse taking barrels out dumping barrels uh, filtration blending processing bottling uh, receiving shipping maintenance quality i was very fortunate as i said it was a great training ground and kind of kind of laid the the foundation for my career
1: That's, that's Um, wonderful. You know, they say, I mean, now, now you're a a CEO. They say that, you know, the best CEO is someone who can, who can do at least a creditable job of every function on the shop floor. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you got that opportunity.
3: You know, it's very true. Every, every managerial position I've had, you know, I always felt it was important to, to understand what everybody did. And, and, you know, if you, you do it yourself, uh, and try it, you know, you have a, a better appreciation for what it takes to to get the job done. And, and so I've tried to do that throughout my career.
1: Now, you've done a lot of service work as well, uh, advancing and advocating for the industry by the uh, Distilled Spirits Council.
3: Yeah, there's uh, a number of organizations. Uh, you know, when I um, worked for Brown Foreman right after Seagram's, um, I actually got a taste of working with the Kentucky Distillers Association, and then uh, from Brown Foreman, I end up being managing director at the Wild Turkey Distillery. And that's where I actually served on several committees in Washington, D.C. with with Discus. It's the Distilled Spirits Council. Wow. But there again at Wild Turkey, I was uh, also still on the Kentucky, on the board of the Kentucky Distillers Association. I actually ended up uh, becoming chairman at, at one point as well. So, okay. Right.
0: You've been busy. <laughs>
3: Well, it's one of those things I've always believed in and was taught well early in my career that, uh, you know, you, you become an advocate for the industry, you know, an ambassador for the industry. It's not just about your brands and, and what have you, but but you try to be a good ambassador to promote the industry in general.
0: Right. So your company is Grain and Barrel Spirits. How is it different from your previous ventures?
3: So I work for Grain and Barrel Spirits in the capacity as a consultant uh, about three years ago. I decided to step away from the corporate rat race and and actually ramp up my retirement plan. And that was not to retire, but to actually start my own consulting uh, company and and share my years of experience and and knowledge that I picked up in in the spirits industry. And uh, I was lucky early on, I picked up a couple clients when I first started and Grain and Barrel was one of those. And uh, I met the founder, uh, Marty Antela, who's the founder of Grain and Barrel Spirits. And he had acquired the Chicken Cock whiskey brand. With Chicken Cock whiskey, Monty hired my consulting services first to kind of help him with a supply chain. But Monty shared his vision of Chickencock, and that was to resurrect it back to Kentucky. And, uh, you know, when, when you're getting in the bourbon business, uh, and whiskey business in general, uh, you just don't make it one day and bottle it the next. You got to be patient.
1: <laughs> it's <laughs> the long game. You're playing the idiot. long game.
3: It is indeed. And there's investment and, and uh, a lot of patience involved that, uh, you know, hopefully over time and, and aligning to mature properly it's going to come to fruition. So Marty shared that, that his vision with me. And so we looked in the Paris, Kentucky area where chicken cock whiskey actually originated in 1856. It's an old, old brand. And wow. uh, there's a lot of, a lot of history, pre-prohibition, during the prohibition and post-prohibition. But in the 1950s, the distillery burned down.
1: It, it survived prohibition. It,
3: well, it did. The distillery shut down like many many distilleries during that time. They, they actually sold the brand to a Canadian company, a chicken cock brand, to a Canadian company up in Montreal. And they actually mm-hmm. made a rye whiskey, put that whiskey in a bottle, and actually put it in a tin can because it protected it when they bootlegged it across the border into the United <laughs> States. <laughs> But actually, Chicken Cock, that's one of its claims to fame. It was actually the House Whiskey at the Cotton Club, which is probably one of the most famous speakeasies uh, during
1: that era. Indeed, in Harlem. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, in Harlem. Now, this was and is to a degree still known as the famous old brand. How did it arrive at that moniker?
3: Uh, That was given by its uh, original owner, uh, James Miller, who started the brand. And uh, it was just kind of a, a catchphrase, I think, that started. And then uh, he hadn't been in the business very long. And, and when he passed away, he had a very loyal clerk by the name of George White. And uh, Mr. White, of course, he didn't have the money to buy the business, but he picked up a few investors. And, and between them, they actually acquired the, the distillery, started back up and, and uh, actually kept the chicken cock brand going. And, and they some of the original bottles... There's a, a museum. You ever heard of the Oscar Gets Museum down in Bardstown, Kentucky?
0: Uh, no. Okay. I have not, no.
3: If, if you ever come to Kentucky, you, you need to go to see the Oscar Gets Museum. It has the full history of, of uh, bourbon whiskey and whiskey in Kentucky in general. Okay. And and right. uh, they have a lot of the old bottles, pre-prohibition bottles, that they have on display down there. And it's pretty fascinating. But uh, one of the bottles, they have that. And, and Mr. White actually made a tribute to – uh, Mr. Miller, he said, James A. Miller, famous old brand chicken cock whiskey, and so that's kind of how okay. that that moniker kind of stuck.
1: All right, all right. Now I'm a I'm a sucker for resurrected brands, uh, and if a number of major uh, brands and portfolios have resurrected, particularly bourbon and rye brands. When did this brand shutter?
3: Uh, it was in the 1950s, actually. The distillery burnt down, and it was owned by National Distillers at that time actually back up a little bit. The National Distillers acquired the the brand from the the Canadian company before Prohibition ended. National was one of the big companies that actually had the money to buy a permit to make medicinal alcohol. And so they started the distillery back up before Prohibition actually ended, before it was repealed. And they actually were making uh, chicken cock and it had the medicinal alcohol label on it. Some of those bottles actually exist down at this Oscar Getz Museum I, I was telling you about. So, Mm-hmm. Um, so in the '50s, it uh, it burnt down. and They made a decision not to rebuild it, and so the brand just just sat idle. It was a registered brand, uh, but it it sat idle. And then, uh, long around uh, what was it, 2011, 2012, Marty actually acquired the brand, and again uh, had this vision to resurrect it.
1: All right, very good. Now, how many standard issue whiskeys do you make?
3: Right now, we, we've got two two of our, our primary brands. We have the Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, and also the Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey. Um, but we've, you know, we've we've come out with a number of different uh, specialties. Mm-hmm. Currently, you know, we're we're still sourcing whiskey to bridge the gap until ours becomes of age. Okay, I've, I've talked about the resurrection. Well, one of the things I did <laughs> through my consulting services was to help negotiate a contract and, and we are working with a company called Bardstown bourbon company. Are you familiar with
1: Sorry. them? Uh, indeed. I've heard of them. Yeah.
3: Yeah. They, they've been in business now about four years, I guess, uh, when they actually started up and, and in my previous life, before I started the consulting business, I actually did some work with them and, and negotiated a contract for another company, but um, uh, they're a great company. They, they have what they call a, a, a collaborative distillation program. And essentially what, what I did through our, our agreement, I mean, I basically gave them our mash bill, which uh, mash bill for our, our chicken cock whiskey is 70% corn, 21% rye, and 9% malted barley. And so I uh, gave them that. I also gave them all the work instructions as far as, you know, the time and temperatures that they need to cook the corn, the rye, the malted barley, and then also gave them all the specifications for the fermentation and distillation. And then I also go out and I, and I selected the barrels For the original batches, we laid down our first 600 barrels in August of 2018. So it's going to be at least 2022 before that whiskey becomes of age and and we can actually start bottling.
1: Okay. all right. Right. Uh, So you give them with Bardstown, you give them the recipe, you give them all the specs and they execute.
3: Yeah, essentially, we we use their facility, uh, we use their their employees, and then when when they make our, our whiskey, I go down and kind of oversee the first couple of batches because it takes about you know they run twenty four seven. It takes about three days to to make our whiskey.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Next year, we've actually we're doubling up on it, so it's going to take about six between six seven days to actually produce it. But uh, but I go down there for the original for the startup of it and, and uh, go through it with them for the first uh, two or three batches just to make sure that they're following specifications, right. And, and typically they, they know what they're doing. Now they, they have a number of, a lot of different recipes they cook for a number of different companies. So it can get a little bit confusing at times, but but their operators are great. They, everything's you know, automated and they, they have a, a great crew of people that, that really make sure they dot
1: their I's and cross their T's. So Sure, sure. Well, the startup costs. This is this. I think this is the. You know, this is a workable business model. You don't have to risk it all if you don't have the startup costs banked. That doesn't mean you can't make spirits.
3: Very true. I mean, that's that's the, the business model that so many companies have used. And and again, when you're trying to resurrect a brand like like we did, you know, you got to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. And so you go out, and, and that's another part of what my my role is. Is I go out and I try to locate a uh, good quality aged whiskey that, that we can put in the, you know, under the chicken cock brand. And again, bridge that gap until ours becomes a proper age and matured properly.
1: You spoke of the you spoke of the mash bills, all uh, well, the mash bill for the bourbon, at least already. Uh, how did you arrive at that? That's not a I wouldn't say that's a particularly high rye bourbon.
3: Uh, actually, it is a little bit higher than most. Okay. But, you know, we, again, Marty did, before I even started working with them, Marty did a a ton of research around the Paris, Kentucky area. And he actually tried to find the original recipe. Mm -hmm. That was was my next question. The game to to try to match that. Didn't, wasn't able to find it. And, you know, again, there's some old bottles of, of chicken cock, the pre prohibition bottles unfortunately through the distillation process the dna doesn't carry through so you really can't tell what the what the mash bill was uh so what we tried to do you know based on taste was try to to uh, capture it you know given given our knowledge and, and industry experience as close as we could with that mash bill
1: did chicken cock make rye in the us originally or was that only since the canadian
3: that was actually since the canadian yeah to it, it, my to my knowledge they just made what they called whiskey and of course it was it was bourbon whiskey back then mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so the rye came into play when when the brand was sold to, to the Canadian company.
0: That's interesting. I think that's just really interesting, considering rye is really the first American whiskey before bourbon, and they're such an old company. I would have thought maybe they they would have some rye.
3: Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the things when you look back at history, especially in when what became Bourbon County, you know, when, when Kentucky was was first first became a state, and I think it was 1792. There were nine counties. In Kentucky. And Kentucky was, back then was the same territory it is now as, as far as the, the actual footprint of the state. And so it was made up of nine counties. Well, today it's made up of 120 counties. And oh, so geez. you can appreciate the Bourbon County actually was about the south 20%, or I'm sorry, the, the east, eastern 20% of, uh, of Kentucky today. And so it was huge. And so Uh, One of the, they found when they they started making whiskey that corn was was easily grown in that that area and there a lot of fertile ground uh, for growing corn. Of course, the the limestone water, there's a lot of variables that play into that. Corn became the dominant grain for sure uh, Mm. because of that.
0: Very cool. Special releases. Are you guys planning on doing any special releases once you have some finished use of your own?
3: Yeah, we've got a a few on on the drawing board, Carrie. We just actually came out with one. It's very limited release. Uh, It was called, uh, or it is called Chicken Cock Righteous Blonde.
0: Oh, that sounds fun.
3: (laughs) And Righteous is spelled R-Y-E-T-E-O-U-S. So
1: how, how appropriate. <laughs> That's cute. That's
3: yeah. really cute. Uh, it, 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 we kind of did that. I mean, again, it, it was a way to, to get around some of the, uh, the labeling rules and regulations, but it had it had a connection there. And what we did, it, was, it actually was our, our second collaboration with a company called Goodwood Brewing Company that are based in Louisville. Uh, they have a. They're located in a number of different cities, but Louisville's their, their home base. And and the first collaboration we did, we actually gave them six empty barrels after we produced uh, one of our specialty bourbons, and they put a walnut brown ale in those barrels, and it was in there in about six to eight weeks, I guess, when they dumped the the beer out. Uh, we got those barrels back and put bourbon back into those barrels and tried mm-hmm. to finish them in, in with that walnut brown flavoring in it. And that was called chicken Cog beer barrel select. And it did quite well. Uh, to me, it tasted more like an Irish whiskey than it did uh, than a bourbon because it really had a lot of, uh, you know, malted barley flavor to it, but it was very good. It sold very well. Again, limited edition, and it was just about sold out. I don't know if you're able to find any on the retail shelf or not, but, uh, Uh, Again, it was very limited. So this collaboration we did is similar, but our first batch of the Kentucky straight bourbon, we gave them six of our our barrels once we dumped the bourbon. And this time they put a blonde ale in those barrels. Mm. And so, again, it was about eight weeks uh, they aged their their beer in those barrels. When they dumped that beer out and, and bottled it, we ended up getting the barrels back. And this time we put a rye whiskey. And so that's why the Righteous Blonde has a blonde ale connection with it. Uh, but it. again, very limited. It's, uh, I think we bottled 1,427 bottles. You know, it's, it's been allocated out to the states that, uh, where Grain and Barrel is, is selling their, their products. And, uh, but it's, it's very, very limited.
0: Do you know if California is one of those states?
3: Uh, I don't know that California got any of that at all. No, they, uh, yeah. they've just been expanding their, their markets this year. And, uh, I know they've been working on getting in California, but I, I'm not sure if they're in the California market yet or not. Yeah, okay.
1: Well, that, that brings up the question. What is chicken Cox distribution? Is it available in all 50 or is it still regional?
3: No, no. Uh, at the beginning of this year, it was in about 12 States. Now it's in about 30, hope to be in about 32 by the end of the, the year.
0: Oh, okay. Great. All right. Cool. Uh, shall we taste? I think we should start tasting. So we have the rye and the straight bourbon. Okay. So which do you prefer us to start with?
3: I, I think you ought to start with the bourbon first. Uh, the rye, you get a lot of the more spiciness to it. So I think you need to start with, with the bourbon probably is the way I would taste them first.
1: Okay. I'm nosing it.
0: Oh, you already poured, did you? You're faster I
1: than I did. No, I, have, ready. I have not been sipping. I just poured.
3: You know, and that that makes a difference. You know, a lot of times if you pour it and, and, and kind of let it air out a little bit, it's amazing the flavors that, that really kind of open up.
1: Mm. Right. So decanting is advised.
3: I, I think so. I mean, depending on the product, but I, I think uh, it really can, can enhance what you're picking up in the tasting on, on the on the bourbon,
1: especially. Yeah, I'm getting on the nose. I'm getting toasted caramel. Oh,
0: yeah. I smell that. Toasted caramel. It smells delicious. It's got a it's got a bit of a, a of a heat aspect to the to the nosing.
3: Mm hmm. Now, this is uh, both of these actually are 90 proof, by the way. So, mm-hmm.
1: OK. And how did you arrive at, at 90 as your your sweet spot?
3: You know, we, we tried a, a number of different proofs and uh, it just I just felt that at 90, you you get you still get a little bit of that, that alcohol heat, but mm-hmm. it's not overbearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I try to do is when I, I start knocking proofs down, I try to get it to the point where the alcohol burn subsides, and the, you know the caramel and vanilla, which to me are the two dominant flavors of bourbon, really overtake mm-hmm. the profile. And so, you know, there's a fine line there where you don't want to over dilute the, the flavors, but knock down the alcohol burn just enough to where you open up those flavors and they become the
1: dominant characteristic of the profile. Is is a cask strength release in your future?
3: I'm hoping so. Um, you know, we, we've, got, uh, uh, we've got a couple of ideas that we still need to solidify with what we've got going on, the whiskey that we've matured. You know, one of the key differences for this last batch, we just laid down another 600 barrels in Bardstown at, uh, in March. And oh, wow. one of the, I guess, one of the opportunities I've had during my career, I worked at Brown Form 12 years. Nine of those 12 years, I actually managed their cooperage operations, so I've wow. got some experience about, you know, working in the barrel and what it takes to make a, a great barrel. And, and most people don't realize that 60 to 70 percent of the flavor in a finished bottle of, of whiskey is coming from from the white oak
1: barrel. Indeed. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. So in my consulting business, one of the I mentioned I picked up a couple early clients. One of the clients I picked up was a company called West Virginia Great Barrel Company and um, spent a lot of time there training them, I actually trained them, uh, their their stave mill. Employees teach them how to quarter saw white oak logs and how to edge up the staves and heading, how to stack them and so forth to properly air dry them. And then when the cooperage started up uh, this past February, I spent quite a bit of time out there working with them as well, training employees and and teaching them how to make barrels right and how to toast them and charm properly because those are two critical elements. Oh, totally. So what I did for the bourbon that we laid down in in March. A year ago, May, I was out there, and I actually hand-selected, personally selected, uh, the logs. Wow. And I chose nothing but tight-grain white oak. And when I say tight-grain, you're looking at at least 10 annual growth rings per inch when you look at the end of that log. I'd say the logs, and one of the reasons we use West Virginia is they have an extremely high percentage of tight-grain oak. And it, they're averaging somewhere in the 12 to 15 annual growth rings per inch. So, oh, wow it's important that with that tight grain that you're getting the density and, and the concentrated flavors from the hemicellulose and lignin in that wood. And, um, and that's, that's where your two dominant car- uh, caramel and vanilla flavors come from. Okay. The hemicellulose is where your polysaccharides exist. And it's just like taking sugar in a in a spoon and holding it over a Bunsen burner.
1: Mm-hmm. You know
3: what you do, it starts melting and caramelizing on you. Well, that's, that's where you're getting the, the caramel flavors. in in your whiskey. Likewise, when you heat that barrel and we're just toasting it now, we're not charring it, we're just toasting it and creating those flavors and driving them deep into the wood. Well, when you toast it in that fashion, the lignin you convert into Mm vanillin and and that's where you get your vanilla flavor. So by toasting it properly, you drive that deep into the wood so that when you do char it later in the process, you don't burn all those flavors away. You you blister the the surface of wood just enough that uh, the whiskey can penetrate it and work like a charcoal filter where it strips that graininess flavor. You know, those, those, the corn and the rye and the malted barley you taste when it comes off the, off the still and picks up those desirable flavors the, the caramel, vanilla, and the other phenolic compounds that are created during that toasting process.
0: I'm totally thinking of making s'mores right now because (laughs) (laughs) you just basically described how I deal with my marshmallows over the fire, you know, because I definitely prefer to toast them lightly um, versus burning them and charring them because they do, it does give a different flavor.
1: Yeah.
3: That's a good analogy actually, Quay. Very good analogy.
1: Yeah. What sort of char are you using when you get to the char?
3: So for chicken cock, uh, we're using a number three level char. There's actually four levels of char, four being the heaviest and deepest. Again, part of my experience when I worked at Brown Foreman, I was uh, a part of what they call their maturation committee. And there was a lot of very intelligent people. Sounds
1: like a retirement co-op.
3: Well, you know, uh, (laughs) you ever heard of Lincoln Henderson was was the former master distiller at Woodford Reserve. And then he became uh, one of the founders of Angel's Envy, Willie Mm -hmm. Pratt, I was also on that maturation committee. Willie was, uh, I think, one of the first master distillers for uh, for micters. Anyhow, there was a, a lot of knowledgeable people. We did a ton of research on, on barrels and maturation. And uh, when you toast that barrel properly and you create all those great flavors and you drive it deep into the wood as far as you can, you don't want to burn them away. So the deeper, you know, if you go to a number four level char, you're burning it away. So number three is just enough where you blister it, you're getting enough char on there to create that charcoal filter because that's really primarily what the char is doing.
0: Right. So it, when you char, I've never asked this question before, and I don't know why to anybody, but when you're charring a barrel, is it by time or is it by by looking at it?
1: Well,
3: it depends on the equipment, but but typically most of them are, are set by time, uh, you know, based on, on the temperature that their system ignites at. So Okay. Yeah, to get a, you know, again, it just depends on the equipment. In in West Virginia, uh, that process, it it really only takes about 30 seconds. It's pretty quick. So we go to the rye now, because I I usually don't make any comments. I let people taste, and and I don't like to sway,
1: you know, minds and and thoughts. All right. Now, this uh, is also 90 proof? The rye, it is, yes. Okay. And what's the mash bill on this?
3: So this is 95% rye, five malted barley.
1: Oh, wow. No corn.
3: Nope, nope. That's, None at that's all.
0: why I don't taste any corn. That would be why. <laughs> 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 like I it was, it's a very, very rye forward. Which I see why it's ninety-five percent.
3: For years, I wasn't a big fan of rye. And I guess you know when I worked at Wild Turkey, I was managing director of Wild Turkey a little over ten years, and we had a rye whiskey. We didn't sell a lot of it, but it was it was like thirty some odd percent corn. I just it just didn't have the flavors that, that I like now. When some of these ninety five percent ryes started coming out, uh, I tried them and, and I thought, "Wow, these are fantastic." I mean, if you really like the the spice and the peppery notes, yeah, man, these, these are. I think it's a great formulation.
0: Definitely has the peppery notes. I like it.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: this is wonderful. And I actually really like the bourbon. And I'm not. I'm usually a, a rye over bourbon, but I don't know. I i i think i think they're about. Equally the
3: same. Yeah, you know, that, that's the beauty about tastings, Carrie. Is that there is no right answer. You know, everybody's palate is different, and so it's it's what you like. Uh, uh, it, you know, it's like a lot of these ratings. You know, we send samples to different organizations, and you know, we just got I think it with the Ultimate Spirit Challenge. Uh, both of these got a 94 rating actually, which is pretty pretty strong.
0: It is good.
3: And others, you know, they don't score as high. So it, again, it's just it's uh, there is no right or wrong answer. Like I said, it's just what you like.
0: Right now, no, you,
1: they're you, both they're both delightful. Now with the rye, is this wholly yours, or is this also a an attempt to to match the old Canadian recipe?
3: We didn't try to match the, the Canadian recipe. We we went out and, and part of what I did was to, to try to find something that I felt really had a, had a great flavor. You know. Okay. Uh, I didn't look at the age. I, had, I actually tried samples from a number of different distilleries. And, and believe it or not, this came from Bardstown Bourbon Company.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh. We're actually working with them to, to make rye for, for future offerings as well. That's my next question.
0: Yeah, it's great stuff.
1: It is great stuff. Wonderful. I,
0: I'm Wonderful. very impressed with both of them.
1: Yeah, likewise, likewise. So, cocktails. We ask this of all our guests what is your go-to? Not not what is your favorite, but what is your go-to? Do you have a preferred category? Stirred or shaken or built? Uh, base spirits? It's it's most often whiskey, but sometimes our guests surprise us.
3: Yeah, typically mine's on the rocks, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's how I do my cocktails too.
3: Yeah, you know, it, it really simplifies things. But uh, neat or on the rocks is how I prefer to drink bourbon. Likewise with the rye, when you get a, a good flavorful rye like this with the complexity of flavors it has, same thing. I like it neat or uh, or on the rocks. However, I've made some old fashions in Manhattans with this rye whiskey that I think are just phenomenal.
0: I mean, I, I could imagine. Yeah, I can totally see that.
3: Yeah. And with the complexity and the spiciness of it, it just, it, and the, the flavors are, are just wonderful all over the place. They're great.
1: Yeah. And I would say, you know, often I, you know, I have a preference for a, a black Manhattan, but I'm thinking with this, there's so much complexity in the rye that you don't want an Amaro and all of that herbaceousness uh, doing yeah. battle with this. And you want, when you go with the vermouth, I'm thinking you might want something that is, you know, has a, a more restrained botanical mix.
3: Right. I prefer actually, if, if, if I want to make a cocktail, I'll pull out the rye and I make an old fashioned. And I, the simple syrup I use makes, makes a huge difference. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a half cup of uh, white sugar, a half cup of brown sugar and a cup of, of water. And I just dissolve it. Oh, nice. it's, it's, but it makes a great simple syrup. Yeah,
0: I always like making my own simple syrup because, it, you know, you can get to play with some of the flavors in that, which then indeed. in turn plays with some of the flavors in your cocktail. Yeah.
1: Well, so. Greg, this has been delightful. You now, the when, uh, mind, Like
3: I said earlier, I, I appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you guys, and you know, you're talking my favorite subject, and that's uh, a good one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking our favorite subject
1: too. Indeed, indeed, you are a spirit of whiskey. <laughs> you are.
0: So, when do you think you're going to have your very first release of the stuff that you put down? Do you have a goal date, or you just?
3: I think the game plan right now is is it's going to be, like I said, late 2022. Of course, the the whiskey that we just laid down in March that I actually personally selected the logs and actually oversaw the, the production of the barrels and oversaw the production of the the whiskey and and uh, the whole whole from start to finish, is, as I say, from bark to barrel to bottle to or from bourbon to bottle, uh, the four Bs.
0: Nice.
3: Um, yeah, it'll be ready in 2024. Okay. Patience is a virtue, as they say. And so we'll just yep. wait until it's at least four, four and a half years old. And again, we we will probably be, uh, I mean, we've got some discussion as far as to lay out the, the brand strategy going forward, but there's definitely going to be some uh, renditions that we hang on to longer and we'll have some barrel picks as well. So Great.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. This is all very fun and exciting, and I'm very excited to watch chicken cock grow, if that's kind of a bad way to say it, I think. (laughs) I'm excited to watch your company grow, um, and I'm excited to taste this when the stuff that you've laid down is all your own, because so far what you've done with with the sourced whiskey is is delicious.
3: Well, if you folks ever get to Kentucky, uh, give me a holler, and uh, I'd love to, to show you what we're doing.
0: Absolutely. It's been known to happen. All right. Well, thanks again, Greg. And okay. we'll keep in touch. Thank, Thank you, so you very much.
3: Appreciate it. All right. Take care.
0: World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us.
2: Hey, Louise. How are you doing today? I'm doing well on this fine Sunday. How are you? I'm
0: good. I'm glad you were able to uh, make it on the weekend here to review this wonderful chicken cock whiskey first of all, I love the name. I think it's hysterical. We've got the, uh, the whiskey
2: to taste. So tell me what you think. Well, yeah, the name certainly stands out. I, I will say that. I mean, if you were walking through booze shop and you saw that, and also the label is beautiful. So I mean, it definitely caught my eye for sure. So I started off with the bourbon because you had given me two different bottles—the mm. bourbon and the rye—and mm. I started with the bourbon because I figured I'd start with the classic, and it was just that to me. I felt like this 100% caramelly butterscotchy classic bourbon needed to go with some southern fried chicken. Yum. And I thought I wanted to add a little bit of a twist to it. So... With my fried chicken, I'm going to serve it with an orange chili crisp. Mm. And if there are people listening and are not familiar with chili crisp, it's a condiment. It's a an Asian condiment made many different ways throughout various parts of Asia, China, Southeast Asia, such as Thailand and Vietnam. There are many var- variations of this, oh. but essentially what it is is a chili pepper, shallot, garlic, sometimes there's peanuts, sometimes there's different peppercorns, sometimes there's different spice blends, all kind of roughly chopped up or mashed or pounded and then mixed with oil. Mm. So it's kind of like a loose, oily salsa of sorts, if you want to call it that. I mean, that's not really exactly accurate, but it's a delicious condiment that's amazing on eggs, it's amazing on rice, but also, I figure. I would make one using dried orange peel and some Sichuan peppercorns, some Chile de Arbol, and then all the rest of the usual sp- suspects, as well as peanuts, that would go on top of the chicken. So it would give it a little bit of spice and then a little bit of the fragrance from the orange, I think would be really, really good wow. with this bourbon. Well, I'll have to try that. I've never heard of this condiment that you're speaking of, so
0: that'd be interesting.
2: I'll tell you, once w- now that you've heard it, you'll see it all over the place. It's kind of been the condiment du jour lately but it's you know it's one of these things it's like just because white people haven't heard about it doesn't mean it hasn't existed forever (laughs) so there's my two cents on that one and with fried chicken and bourbon it's gonna rock and roll hoochie cooch so great so that's what i'm thinking about with the with the bourbon with the chicken cock bourbon So what do you think about the rye the rye loved it i mean i rye Whiskies are probably my favorite, so I'm a little bit biased there. But with the rye, I wanted to pair it with a Kentucky classic, the Hot Brown. Ooh which is an open-faced turkey sandwich that is topped with the Mornay sauce, which is like a cheesy cream sauce, tomatoes and bacon. It is a sandwich. Oh my gosh, that sounds great. I mean, anyone that's ever been to the Kentucky Derby most likely has had this sandwich, I would hope at least. (laughs) It was created at the Brown Hotel in Louisville in 1926. And the Brown Hotel was a place where a lot of people went for late night music and dancing. And the chef there figured that he needed to feed them them at some right. point, so he came up with this sandwich, and it has lasted through the years, and it's still a classic to this day. And it's also, oh, that's yeah, and it's one of those things that it's come to be something that people will have on Derby Day. And so I figured I would take the rye and make myself a mint julep with the rye mm-hmm. and a hot brown. So that sounds
0: good. Hot brown mint julep
2: <laughs> combo. Hot hot brown sandwich and a mint julep. I really don't think you can go wrong with that combo. That's
0: great. Well, thank you so much. I think that's definitely something that I haven't tried before. And I think many of our viewers will, viewers, many of our listeners will uh, will agree. That sounds like a very interesting combination. And
2: you got to get out, Carrie. I know. You got to leave California. Well, once
0: this lockdown <laughs> is really over, I plan to go all over the place. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your input on these two expressions from Chicken Cock. Can't wait to see what else they're going to come up with. But yeah, thank you for your ideas. And we will talk to you next week. Sounds good. I'll talk to you guys then.
1: Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E.
0: We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy.
1: As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us.
0: Until next time,
1: Slunch of Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of The Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.